Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to North Bible Church. Great to see you here this morning. Hope you enjoyed the extra day of the year that we got yesterday, the leap day. You guys enjoy your leap day? Did you get a lot done on your leap day? Good, good. Welcome to the month of March, the month of uh, spring break, the month of spring training, the month of uh, March Madness, if you're a college basketball fan, about uh, St. Patrick's Day. Somebody reminded me that uh, March is also the month of pie. Yeah. yeah, the 14th, right? The 14th is the month of pie. And so hopefully if you enjoy that or partake in that. A lot of great things coming up in March. For us, it is the first month um, over the past six months that we don't have a birthday in the house, so I get to save a little money on birthday presents, which is nice. Looking forward to, I mean, I mean, I mean uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's great. Spring is coming. Spring is here, and uh, summer will be soon to follow. So hope you enjoy March. Welcome to the month of March. Um, so we are continuing this morning, though, in the book of Hosea, and as we do, we're in week six. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 11. Uh, this morning, but we are continuing our series called The One Thing. And if you've been with us through this series, you know that the one thing refers to God's love. That God's love is the most important thing, that as we understand that, as we know that, as we, as we, get, to, as we get more in depth in what God's love is and examine all the different ways in which God loves us, it changes us, and it changes who we understand God to be as well. And so in all of this, um, we are exploring what this looks like from the book of Hosea. This morning I want to begin with a story, kind of a remarkable story, um, but back in 1987, McDonald's started what, was, what became the most successful promotional game ever done by a fast food restaurant in history. When I say it was successful, the first year that McDonald's did this and the 14 years that followed uh, consecutively, they increased their sales during the Monopoly game by 30 to 40 percent when they ran this game and this promotion. You may remember the Monopoly game, right? Do you remember that? The Monopoly game basically consisted of you going in and buying like a food item and then you get Monopoly game pieces and then you affix them to the board. And if you get like all of one color, you can win certain prizes that range anything from like food items all the way to a million dollars, which was the grand prize. And depending on how you, you got your ticket, sometimes you get instant winners that allowed you to win like a boat or a car, and then of course like $250,000, and the grand prize was a million dollar instant winner, and you could win it that way, or you could also win a million dollars by getting Boardwalk and Park Place. And if you played the game back then, you remember how many Park Places you got, and you always would convince yourself, I'm halfway to a million dollars, but in reality there was only one Boardwalk like on the entire planet, so you weren't really close at all to winning a million dollars. But that was kind of the beauty of the game, it gave you hope that you might win, right? Well, it's, it's ironic to say that because as it started in 1987, by 1989, a man by the name of Jerry Jacobson, who was a head of security for the marketing company that ran the McDonald's promotion, which McDonald's outsourced this to a marketing company that ran the promotion for them, and this guy was the head of security of that, in charge of overseeing things like the game pieces, figured out there was a way that he could rig the game so that he could actually pick the winners every single year, and that as he picked the winners, those winners would give him money back for giving them the game pieces. So Jerry Jacobson in 1989 figured this out, and he started by stealing the $1 million game piece and distributing it to other people so that they could win it, and then he could reap some of the profits as well. 
By about year two or three, he partnered with uh, uh, one of the mafia families, one of the mob families, and the network spread out. So that from the year 1989 to about 2001, for 12 years, there were almost no legitimate winners of the McDonald's monopoly uh, monopoly pieces, especially the ones that were the grand prize and higher priced items. So like $250,000, a million dollars, the cars, the boats, all of that were people that Jerry Jacobson or his mafia crime partner picked as winners throughout the entire thing, which kind of puts a damper on the whole contest, right? I had fond memories of that. It brings up nostalgia and then to know that it was fixed every single year. But what's amazing, and this has come back to, the, come back to light because uh, HBO is, is, is doing a, a documentary on this whole thing and how the whole thing went down. And one of the things I've been watching this thing, one of the things that's interesting about this documentary is they are interviewing some of the people who took part in this scam. Not necessarily Jerry Jacobson and the high-level guys, but the ones who basically they recruited to be the ones who won because, of course, the same people couldn't win every year, and they had to kind of find average, just, average Joes to win the prizes from all over the nation. And there were a few that were kind of small-time criminals, but for the most part, these were just everyday people who either needed a little extra money because they had medical bills that they needed to pay, or in one case there was a guy who was running a small business that just needed a little extra money to keep his business running. Uh, There was one woman who was a single mom who was working two jobs who was just trying to pay her mortgage month to month, so she kind of fell for this trap and allowed herself to be kind of, you know, part of this. And these were all people who had never really committed any serious crimes in their lives. And as they're being interviewed, of course, they're expressing their remorse. I mean, getting caught by the FBI will make you remorseful over something like this, because many of them got caught and were, you know, sentenced to to, uh, fines or, or to jail time. But what's interesting is that with every single one of them, especially uh, some of those who just kind of unwillingly got involved in some ways, they look back and they realize that when they agreed to say yes to be a part of this scam, that they didn't really think about the consequences. They didn't think possibly about what might happen. All they were thinking about at the time was the money and how that money might be able to help them. I say that this morning because we get into week six. You know, week five was last week. We talked about how God was speaking to his people, the people of the Old Testament, Israel, and telling them through the prophet Hosea, look, this is how far you have wandered from me. And you may have not considered the consequences of what one decision and how one decision would lead to another and how far you may have wandered from me. But God comes to them and says, look, from the very beginning, I've called you by my love and I've continued to pursue you and you continue to turn your back on me. And as we saw last week, God says, the source of the issue is your heart. That no matter what, and, 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 this, is, and this is key for all of us to remember, that no matter what we say we believe, no matter what we, what we may articulate in the end, we end up doing the thing that our heart wants to do. The thing that we desire is the thing that we end up doing. And so God is showing Israel, Israel, this is where your heart has gone. It has wandered so far from me. And in a lot of ways, maybe just like similar to the people who got involved in this McDonald's monopoly scam, Israel didn't necessarily think about how the consequences of their decision might lead them to where they are. But the decisions by this point in the book of Hosea, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 11 this morning, so we've got only like four chapters to go. We're in the last quarter, the final quarter of this book, and by this point, we've seen these tragic results that have been spelled out for us page after page in the book of Hosea. And although it seems like Israel certainly didn't understand what they were doing was leading them to destruction, by this point in the book, this is exactly what they're on the precipice of. They're about 20 years before Assyria ultimately destroys the northern kingdom Israel in history. 
But God is still, even where they're at, and as far as they have wandered away from him, he is still urgently and lovingly calling them back to trust him. And that's what we're going to see here this morning. And I think this book is a really interesting, it's been a really interesting blend of imagery throughout. We mentioned that the book of Hosea is primarily written in kind of a poetic structure. And whenever you get a poetic structure like that, you get a lot of imagery, you get a lot of metaphors. I, I, I like to say metaphors. I've been saying metaphors through this whole series. My daughter, my 13-year-old daughter corrected me and said, Dad, some of those are similes. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so if, 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 I'm just using metaphors as kind of a blanket term, but if you're an English major and I've offended you by not calling some of these similes, I don't know where they are, but just you know, allow that to cover all of it. But anyway, metaphors, similes, whatever. There's picture and image language that's being used throughout here. And the reason is it's communicating some deeper truths in particular about who God is. A lot of this imagery God uses to apply to himself and portrays himself. For example, we see God as portraying himself as a faithful husband to his people. We see that from the very beginning. And this is the lasting image really through the book of Hosea because it's Hosea living his life out as the faithful husband to his wife Gomer who continues to cheat on him over and over again. And as God says, look, I am like Hosea who goes and gets the unfaithful bride and brings her back home time and time again even though she turns away from me. So God is the faithful husband. God is also seen as the true and great king in contrast to the king of Assyria and the king of Egypt and the other kings of the world. We've also seen him as a lion ready to pounce as a whirlwind of judgment, we've also seen him as a hunter who is trapping his prey. This morning, we're going to see God primarily as a good father. We're going to see that in Hosea chapter 11 here this morning. And one of the things about this I think is important to realize is that these symbols all have a purpose. They're not just, they're not just used for poetic effect. They're actually used in a way to help us see how God loves us differently, how God, the depth of God's love, I should say. So we've talked about in the book of Hosea like the, the, the multifaceted aspects of God's love. And certainly as we understand these anthropomorphisms as they're known, like ways that God relates to us in human terms, he says things like, I love you like a husband. That love is different than the love of a father. And that love is different than the love of a good king. And that love is different than the love of a righteous judge or whoever it may be, right? And so as we see all these different images of God presenting himself to us and portraying himself, these are all different ways in which God says, this is how I love you in so many different ways to Israel. And so these symbols have a purpose. And we're going to talk a lot and dive a lot into this idea of God as loving a good father this morning. And I realize that depending on your relationship with your earthly father, um, the imagery of a father might not be the best example of love for you. Certainly our earthly fathers are not perfect, but at the same time there are certain aspects where we can look at our earthly fathers that actually portray the goodness of what a good father is supposed to be. So this morning, I feel like as we get into this, we should realize that when God is saying, I am a father to Israel, which he says right at the beginning, my, my love for my son who is Israel, he is saying that he is a fa- the type of father who loves us unconditionally, the kind of father who does everything for our good, even sacrificing his own well-being and possibly even his life for his children, a father who knows your faults but still completely loves you in only the way that a father can. A father who guides and teaches and even disciplines you for your own good because he is wise and knows what's good for you. And the kind of father who will never stop loving you no matter what you do. A father with relentless love who never stops seeking you and never turns away. This is the kind of father that God is presenting himself to to Israel as in Hosea chapter 11 and at the same time presenting himself to us 
as our good Father through Jesus. So, last week we talked about, though, how the great love of God is seen in the complete salvation work of Jesus. And just as a reminder, I want to go over those three things again for us this morning, because we're going to focus on one of them in particular this morning. We talked about how how, how the love of God is seen in the way that Jesus completely saves us from our sins. So that justification, which is how we come to God in the first place, we are justified by faith as we believe in Jesus, we are justified, saves us from the guilt of our sin. And then sanctification, which is once you become a Christian and you're born again and you're growing in Christ, we call this spiritual growth, we call this maybe discipleship, we call this transformation is called sanctification, which is where Jesus saves us from the power of our sin progressively as we are growing in Christ from one degree to another. And then finally, what we look forward to one day is glorification, when Jesus will come back and ultimately remove sin from all of his creation, including from our lives, from our hearts, from our thought life, and all of the rest. So justification, sanctification, glorification. Now justification is by faith in Jesus, which we enter into the Christian faith and, be born, and, and we're born again. And then glorification is something that's to come. But sanctification is the one that I want to talk about this morning because that's the one that is most notably taking place in the lives of Christians now as we follow Jesus. And it's the one that we most directly participate in. In other words, Scripture tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Maybe you've seen that verse before and you wondered, what exactly does that mean? That means that we have a role and a partnership in participating in God's Spirit transforming and changing us as we grow into Christ-likeness. We talked about that last week, that the fruit that we live out of our lives is the character of Jesus. This is the process or the result of sanctification, is that it looks like us transforming into the person and the character of Jesus. And today, as we get back into Hosea, we're going to talk about how God does this in our lives. We talked kind of about what it is last week. We're going to talk about how it actually happens in our lives this morning, how sanctification takes place. And I know um, when we drop these big, like, five-syllable theological words, you know, eyes tend to glaze over and that kind of thing. But the focus is not necessarily on the words, although these are great words. The focus is on what does this look like and how does this practically play out in our lives. And it's very practical for those of us who follow Jesus. So, In order for that to happen, though, we need to look at Hosea 11, and one of the things that we're going to see is the depth of God's love as it's presented to us here. Now, Hosea chapter 11 just happens to be one of those places that is one of the most emotional and personal places throughout the book, and you know if you've been with us through this book, that's saying a lot, because there's a lot of emotional and personal language that God engages in throughout this book, but Hosea 11 is one of those places where, especially in a couple of verses, that really is heart-wrenching. You get a sense really for God's emotion here and how much he really loves his people Israel. And in, in a lot of ways, it's moving. And so as we do that, I think it's remarkable for us to see that no matter how far they have gone, he is still pursuing them with this relentless love. Now, Hosea 11 also is a shorter chapter. We're only going to read one chapter this morning, not like two long chapters like we have some weeks. And it's pretty straightforward. And so what I'm saying is I want you to follow along with me as best you can. I think as you follow along, it's going to be a little easier to understand maybe than some of the previous chapters that we've gone through. So verse 1 says this in Hosea chapter 11. Uh, The words should be on the screen behind me as you can follow along there. Or you can, of course, follow along in your Bibles or your devices. Verse 1 says this. God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. And the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. 
I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against the cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me, and my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Jacob with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now, as this chapter begins, you see these very personal and relational words taking us all the way back to the beginning of God's relationship with Israel. In other words, he's talking about the time where he pulls them out of Egypt back in bondage, when they were in bondage during the Exodus, and he brings them to himself and he says, you are my people, and he says, almost kind of nostalgically, remember those days when I loved you so much and brought you out of slavery with these bands of kindness and these bonds of love so that I could bring you to myself. And remember how all of this started. And yet as we get through the chapter, we see that God gets torn and God's, God's kind of torn in this and there's this tension going on because of course what happened is that Israel almost immediately turned away from God and they didn't return the same kind of love that God had put out towards them to draw them out of Egypt in the first place. In other words, no matter how much God loved Israel, it wasn't a love that had been returned from them. In verse 7, we get to this place where God is still struggling with this. And it's a struggle that you can really feel because it's the deepest kind of struggle. It's a struggle within God's own character. Because on the one hand, God is holy, God is righteous, but on the other hand, He is gracious and He is merciful and forgiving. And so you can see this tension going on, and it's almost like as you read this, it's almost confusing because it seems like God's jumping from one side to the other. But this is to, uh, to portray to us the tension that God is dealing with and how he's torn about this. There is tension there, and you see the crux of this hit in verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me. It's this heartbreaking statement. But I think what's amazing in this is that even as the people of Israel are turning away from him and have turned away from him, and by the way, this is bent on turning away from him. It doesn't mean like they turned away from me once and they came back. It means this is where they're going. They are bent continually in a way in which they are rebelling against me. And they're like running full speed in the opposite direction, even though I chase after them. Even in the midst of that, God calls them my people. He doesn't say faithless Israel. He doesn't say those people out there. He doesn't say the people of another God. He says, these are still my people whom I love. And then in verse 8, these three phrases, these remarkable phrases that get directly deep and personal. God says to him, how can I give up on you, O Israel? How can I hand you over, O Ephraim? My heart recoils within me, and my compassion grows warm and tender. God's torn between the righteousness 
and the holiness and his tender compassion and love for his people. And the tension there is just palpable. And I think the tension here is important for us to dive into because it shows us who God really is here. And I say that because sometimes when we look at this, we, it's hard for us to deal with the tension of like, okay, how is God both holy and righteous and he punishes sin, but at the same time he is gracious and he's merciful and he's forgiving? How can he see on the one hand that he forgives sin, but then, uh, but then there is, is the guilt of sin that he's calling out Israel on? I think it's important for us to deal with this because if we err on one side or the other, if we go to one extreme or the other, we have a tendency uh, to view God through that lens that might be inaccurate in terms of his character. In other words, for some people who view God as just kind of this, uh, this cosmic judge who is just waiting to smite us at the first slip-up that we make, they might be completely afraid and repelled of who this God may be. And for those of us who understand God and try to follow him this way, if we see God primarily as this judge who's just kind of out to get us, almost like, remember the eye of Sauron from the Lord of the Rings? It's just kind of looking for an opportunity to destroy somebody as soon as they slip up. If we see God that way, then we will tend to be people who are judgmental, people who are legalistic, because we think that's the way that God treats us. On the other hand, if we err on the opposite side, and we say, well, God is just full of love and mercy and grace, we have a tendency to belittle our sin, not look at it as something that's as serious as God looks at it. Almost like God is kind of the old grandpa, the old gentle grandpa that when the grandkids make a mess of the living room rug, he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, you know, kids are going to be kids. That's just kind of how it goes, right? And in those cases, we might just think that, you know, God, all God wants to do is just give us grace and grace and grace and make us happy and make us feel good. And God certainly gives us grace. He certainly forgives us, but at the same time, there is an understanding to which we know that God takes sin seriously. And so the problem with each of these perspectives alone is that although they take seriously and understand a piece of God's character, on the one side that God is holy and he takes sin seriously, on the other that he is loving and merciful and slow to anger, that if those things are not held in tension together, we aren't seeing, we're not only just missing a huge piece of who God is, but we aren't seeing clearly the correct character of God. Let me offer you, an, let me offer you just a quick simple example. I happened to be writing this sermon while I was drinking coffee, and so I was inspired by this. Let's see if it maybe speaks to you. But a latte, you may know, if you've ever made a latte, is made really of two drinks. On the one hand, you have the espresso, which is the coffee drink, and on the other hand, you have the steamed milk. And while they're separated, there are two drinks. But when you combine them together, they become one drink, and they become something different than they were just separately. They become a latte. They become one drink. And once they become a latte, it's impossible to separate them. I think it's a good representation for what we see in God's character when we come to tension, is that those things, yes, God is both holy and he is righteous, but he's also merciful and slow to anger and full of grace. And so when those things are combined together, that's when we see the full picture of God's character. God actually does this in Exodus 34, 7, and 8 when he introduces himself to his son Israel, referring back to the Exodus time. The Lord, the Lord a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. It started out with all this grace and mercy and God's slow to anger, and then it got quickly dark at the end of that. Did you notice that? The iniquity of the third and fourth generation. That God takes seriously our sin, and God is slow to anger, but that doesn't mean that the anger isn't there against sin and evil. Now look, these words were spoken in 1300 B.C., to Moses and to Israel. The anger of sin was expressed 1,300 years after this on the cross of Jesus. And look, that's how we see the tension here. As this tension comes together, all of that anger, the iniquity that, that, we're, that, that visits the third and the fourth generation, it was 1,300 years later when that anger was poured out on the Son of God on the cross. God is slow to anger, but He is certainly angry at sin. And it was Jesus' cross where the combination of God's holiness and righteousness met with his grace and mercy. That the punishment of sin was satisfied and the forgiveness of sin was won, not just for Israel, but for all of us. And so in verse 9 here in chapter 11, where it says, when God says, I will not carry out my fierce anger and I will not come in wrath despite how far Israel has run away and how much they have rebelled, it's not because God went into permissive grandpa mode in this case. This is a precursor, a prophecy, if you will, or a pointer to ultimately when that anger will be dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. All of which brings this chapter of Hosea very closely to our situation today. As we look through the lens of what Jesus has done for us, we see how this relates to us. First, it's to say that no matter how many times you've turned away from God, no matter how far you've gone or how long it's been since you've turned back to him, God is relentlessly seeking you with his love even as you sit there this morning. And his forgiveness in Jesus meets you right where you are. And at the same time, God takes very seriously the sin that is in our lives. And even though in Jesus, as we saw before, we are justified, which means that if you are in Christ, the guilt of sin has been removed and really the anger or the wrath of sin, the wrath of God towards your sin has been removed, that when we sin, especially when we operate in patterns of sin, it binds us up so that we're not free to live as the people whom we were created to live. In other words, part of the goal of sanctification is being freed to live as the people whom God created us to live as. In other words, we become more human, if you will, as we're more and more freed from sin. You know, as we're getting ready for the baptism next week, which 13 baptisms, guys, maybe 14. You guys excited about that? I, I can't tell you how excited I am, especially because two of my daughters are going to be part of that 13. So I'm just, I'm just looking forward to that. I'm so excited, so excited about next week. But over the past few weeks, I've had a chance to meet with several people who are getting baptized. And as part of our meetings, we talk about what does the Bible have to say or what is the meaning behind baptism? And so I've taken them to Romans 6, which is one of the, my favorite places to talk about baptism. And one of the great things about the picture in Romans 6, if you've never read that before, is that it shows us what freedom looks like in Christ and how baptism represents that. So the next week, as people are, are, as people are immersed in the baptism waters and they come out of the water, there's a picture of them li li living the new life of Jesus and leaving the old person of sin behind. So that they're now free to walk in newness of life, as Romans 6 says. It's the freedom for which Jesus has set us free. And that's the promise of sanctification. That we are being saved from the power of sin and the bondage of sin one degree at a time. 
And this is what we also participate in. And so uh, with the time we have left this morning, I want to talk about really the work of salvation, or the work of sanctification, excuse me. Because there are some basics to sanctification as we talk about what it means to kind of partner with God's Spirit as He is changing us and freeing us and transforming us. There are at least three things that I think are important for us to remember. These three things are pretty simple, they're, uh, they're, but, but I think at the same time they're very, very profound. And certainly there might be more to this. These are kind of general, but I don't think it's any less than this. If we can get these three basic things, they're going to be a good guide for what it looks like for us, again, to work out our salvation and to grow to grow in sanctification, to grow spiritually in Christ. First one is trusting in God. As Hebrews eleven six 6 says, it all starts with trusting God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Or without trusting in, without trusting in God, is it impossible, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So the first step in trusting in God is, first of all, believing that He exists, And then secondly, believing that everything that he does is for our good. Even when it doesn't look like it might be good in our lives, that everything that he tells us through his word and everything that he does in our lives is ultimately for our good. Even though it may be difficult sometimes for us to obey it. I was uh, listening to uh, an interview recently with a woman by the name of Rachel Gilson. If you don't know who Rachel Gilson is, she is a Christian author who is a non-practicing same-sex attracted female who is married to a man. So I know that's a lot. I know that's a mouthful, some charged words there. So let me explain what that means essentially. It means that as a Christian, she, she came to faith in Jesus in her 20s. Before she came to faith in Jesus, she was a practicing lesbian. When she came to faith in Jesus, she realized that Scripture sets a biblical ethic, a biblical sexual ethic for her in terms of her sexual attraction. And even though she is still same-sex attracted, she's still attracted to females, she no longer, or she is celibate celibate in terms of her sexual relationships with females, and she is married to a man, okay? And, And so what that means, essentially, is that although this happens for some people, you know, when they come to Jesus, they're kind of their sexual attraction maybe changes, God does a work in their lives. For her, she's remained same-sex attracted and has, and has worked through following Jesus by faith, trusting him, and not participating in the actual acts of what her desires might lead her to want to do. Now, I thought it was interesting because she was talking about what it feels like for her to live that kind of life, and it all comes back to trusting God when he says that this is what's good for you versus what she wants to do talked about last week how the desires of our hearts are deceptive. Her desires tell her one thing all the time, and yet she goes to God's word and she realizes that God says, this is what is good for you. Don't do this. This is what is good for you. And so she, she goes all the way back to the garden and she says, you know, it's like when Eve was there in the garden facing that tree that God told her not to eat from. If you know the story, of course, God creates the garden. He gives Adam and Eve every, everything, but he says, don't eat from that one tree. You can enjoy all the rest of the trees, everything else you see, enjoy it all except for what's on that tree. Don't go near that tree. Don't eat the fruit from it because if you do, you will die. And there's a part where Scripture tells us that Eve walks up to that tree. She looks at it. She's, of course, tempted by the serpent. She looks at it from her own eyes and she says, well, the fruit looks good and it's desirable for making someone wise. So in other words, there's this beautiful fruit on the tree. Maybe they're bananas that are, that are perfectly ripe. They're yellow with a little bit of green on them, the perfect texture, right? And if you eat the bananas, these are bananas that make you wise. There is nothing about that tree that's telling her to stay away. 
It's all saying, come. Why wouldn't you want to enjoy this? It's like eating pizza that makes you lose weight. It's too good to be true. And here she is sitting right in front of this tree. And I sometimes think to myself as I read that story, like, I don't know what kind of fruit was actually on that tree, but if it was bananas, I'd be building like a tree house in that tree. Not only would I have taken a bite of the fruit, I'd be in that tree house just eating bananas all day long, becoming wise and wise and wise, right? Even more wise, however that is. Well, Rachel says, look, it's like that. It's like everything tells me my desire is what I want. The world around me tells me that I should just eat from the tree. The only thing that tells me not to is God's word. And I can't see what it's going, and I can't really see beyond that other than knowing that God says, if you eat from this tree, you will die. And look, that's what faith looks like. I can only imagine what she goes through in her life at times where she has other people who are telling her, this is what you desire. In our, in our, you know, in our culture, sexual desire is akin to our number one identity in some cases. And so for some people, she's denying the very essence of who she is. But what Rachel realizes is that I'm so much more than just my sexual orientation or my sexual desire. God has designed me for much more than that. And so I'm going to trust him and live out what he tells me to do for my own good, even though I don't feel like it and it doesn't feel like that's the right thing or the best thing for me all the time. But she does it by faith. And I can imagine how many people will say, you're just following the words of this antiquated book and look at the struggle that it's causing in your life. But I think for those of us who know God, we have a personal trust in the real and trustworthy, real living God. And in that case, the words that we see in this book are not just antiquated words in an ancient book, but they are the very words of a living and loving God who gives us his word so that we might know him and for our good. And that's where Rachel comes from. It's an amazing story that she lives out. So faith in God, trusting in God. Secondly, submitting to God. Faith in God results in submitting to God. It should naturally result in that posture and that perspective in our lives. Because here's the thing, all of us have ideas about the big questions in life and how we should answer those. In other words, who am I? What's the purpose of my life? Where am I going? What makes me ultimately happy and content? And whether or not you can articulate those right there in the moment, obviously what we live out speaks to how we answer those questions. The thing is, is that one thing we realize is that God has a way of defining and answering all those things in our lives as well. He has an, an answer for us and a design for our identity. He has a purpose for each one of us. He has a calling on our lives, and he has a way of telling us what is actually contentment for us, despite what we might actually think that it is at times. And when those two ideas, those two sets of ideas come into conflict, what ultimately wins out? Well, if we trust in God, we will naturally begin to submit to God because we trust in the fact, again, that he exists and he says he is who he says he is and that he rewards those who seek him, that he is good. Paul Tripp says this about this idea of what happens and what God's really working to do in our lives. Right here, right now, God isn't so much working to deliver you your personal definition of happiness. He hasn't promised you a successful career, a nice place to live, and a community of people who appreciate you. What he has promised you is himself, and what he brings to you is the zeal of his transforming grace. No, he's not first working on your happiness. He's committed to your holiness. I think we need to hear that one again. 
He's not first working on your happiness. He's committed to your holiness. That doesn't mean that he's offering you less than you hoped for, but much, much more. In grace, he is an intent on delivering you from your greatest, deepest, and most long-term problem, which is sin. And we talked a lot about sin this morning. I think the way to define it is not, sin is not just breaking the rules, but it's what we ultimately trust in, is our faith ultimately in Jesus. When it's not, it becomes idolatry and sin. And I think that's the way what Paul Tripp is defining sin as. This hits the nail on the head in terms of what sanctification is all about. God is delivering you from your biggest problem. Not the problem you're facing at work, not your financial issues, not your desire for something better that's not coming through, not even the medical health issues that you're dealing with right now. Your biggest problem and my biggest problem is sin, a lack of trust in God. But in the process, he's not giving us less than what we hoped for, but he's giving us more as he transforms us into the image of Jesus. And namely, what he is giving us is himself, which leads us to the third piece here. The third work of sanctification, if you will, on our part is walking with God. You know, one of uh, the Bible's favorite phrases to use when it comes to describing how human beings live their lives is, I think this is a metaphor, walking, walking, right? And so when the Bible says we walk, this is kind of like how we live our lives. So we can walk in sin and we can walk in evil or we can walk in goodness, for example, or we can walk with foolishness or we can walk in wisdom. And of course, more impor- most importantly, we can either walk with God or we can walk without God. And that concept of walking with God, I think, is an important one to consider as we talk about what the purpose of this whole salvation thing is all about. That God saves us to bring us to himself so that we can walk with him. Psalm 23 is one of the, if not the most well-known psalm in the entire Bible. And what I love about Psalm 23 is that if you follow it from beginning to end, it is like walking. It is like being on this journey with the good shepherd. Us as the sheep and the good shepherd leading us. In fact, right in the middle of that psalm, it says this, specifically talks about walking. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And the psalmist then talks about how this happens. How is it that God removes the fear of evil from us? I've never been through the valley of the shadow of death, but it sounds like a really scary place. So how is it that God that God removes the fear of evil from us? The answer is in the next part of the verse. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, if you're not familiar with the rod and the staff, this is shepherding imagery. These are the two primary instruments or tools that a shepherd uses with his sheep. Brought a picture of what they look like here, more or less. The rod, the first, the first piece there, is a relatively small stick, almost like a club-like thing that's carved out of wood. Shepherd carves his own rod, And the rod is used primarily as a symbol of power and authority. And so what the the rod typically does is protect the sheep from predators in most cases. So a well-trained shepherd with his rod can defend his sheep against any wolf or other kind of predator that might come to attack his sheep because the sheep are just prey. They can't really defend themselves against any predator, so they need the shepherd to do that. At the same time, the rod also represents discipline or correction. So that if a shepherd sees a sheep that might be falling off an edge or a cliff or might fall into a ravine or into a ditch or maybe even fall into the water, he has the ability, a good trained shepherd, can throw that rod about 20 to 30 yards to scare and to spook the sheep back into the place where it's supposed to be or back into the place where it's supposed to be along with the rest of the fold. Now the staff, on on the other hand, 
That's the uh, tool that we most readily associate with a shepherd. It's used more as a, way of, uh, as, as a way of kind of personal care for the sheep. So because it has that crook on the end and the hook, it's used to rescue maybe small lambs that might fall in a bush or that might fall in a small ditch and to bring them back to safety. But more often than not, all, what the staff is used for is for the shepherd to walk alongside the sheep and to just touch the sheep to let them know and to remind them that the shepherd is here, that his presence is with you and that he's protecting you. Because again, sheep are very fearful animals, they're very jumpy, they're prey, they're not predators at all. And they're just sitting, sitting ducks anytime a predator wants to come. And so they need to be assured that the shepherd is there to protect them. Now, the rod and the staff are often compared to God's words and God's presence with us, that he is present for our discipline, for our protection, for our guidance, and ultimately that all of this is given to us for our provision, for our safety, for our blessing, to teach and correct us and protect us as we walk with God. And really it's that walking with God as we step one step in front, one step at a time in faith and trusting him that ultimately leads to that transformational growth and sanctification. So we trust God, we submit to God, and then we walk with God. And this morning, I want to, as we close, I want to respond by taking one of those steps of faith. We're going to take communion together in response. And as you see, the, the tables are all lined up here, so we're going to invite you in a moment to just come up here and to serve yourself and then to take uh, the elements back to your seat, and maybe you can take communion with uh, friends or family or just on your own. But here's the thing. Um, earlier in, in Psalm 23, in verse 2, if you're familiar with the psalm, you know that the psalmist says, I am like the sheep who my shepherd causes me to lay down in green pastures. Which is a very significant thing because as we said earlier, sheep are really jumpy. They're very fearful. They're very nervous creatures. So for a, a, sh- a sheep to, who's notoriously timid and fearful and restless, to be able to actually lay down and to have rest, they have to have a, a, a conviction or a feeling of full contentment of safety and freedom when they rest or else they won't rest. And so when the psalmist says, I'm like a sheep who lays down at the feet of my shepherd in green pastures that he's prepared for me, what he is saying is that he has removed all fear, he has removed all anxiety, and has allowed me to truly rest so that I can lay down in these green pastures that he has prepared for me. As you approach the communion table uh, this morning, I want you to be able to think about what it means for us to rest in the complete salvation work of Jesus. That by his hands, by what he has done, we are saved from sin, evil, and death completely. Saved from the guilt of sin, being saved from the power of sin, and one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin completely. Past, present, and future, all of it. And what this represents, the body broken on the cross, the body of Jesus broken on the cross, and his blood spilled for our salvation, reminds us as a tangible reminder of the complete salvation work of Jesus so that we can truly rest and be free. And this morning as you approach the communion table, if you need to say a prayer, you need to just take a deep breath to allow that burden, whatever that burden may be on your shoulders this morning, to just leave you. Whether that burden is anxiety, whether it's fear, whether it's worry, whether it's your health, whether it's death itself that you're afraid of this morning. Whatever that burden may be, know that you have been rescued from all of it and that you can truly rest this morning because of what Jesus has done. 
I'm going to pray for us, and after I pray, I would invite you to come up. If you are a Christ follower and you believe that Jesus, uh, you believe that Jesus has died on the cross and that his blood is spilt for your, the forgiveness of your sins, we want to invite you to come forward, take a bread, take a cup, return to your seat, and you can take it actually anywhere in this room. Take it on your own, and then we'll come back and continue in worship afterwards. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have provided the ultimate provision for us. We admit that so many times we walk around like aimless sheep, not knowing where our next step is going to be and not even anticipating the next step might be off of the cliff. But we thank you that you are the good shepherd, Lord Jesus, who comes alongside us and reminds us and even disciplines us and corrects us when we need it for our own good. We confess that so many times, Lord, we fail, we fail to trust you even though you have given us a million reasons to trust you in the past. And Lord, I pray that as we come to the communion table this morning, you would remind us very strongly as we, as we take the bread, as we taste the bread, may we be reminded of the ultimate sacrifice that was paid where the shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. And that as we take the cup, we would be reminded that we are cleansed and washed by the blood of the Lamb of God. And that all sins, past, present, future, are forgiven so that we exist in your grace. And that your desire to do work in our lives is for our own good. May we trust you more, even as we take a step to faith, a step in faith to the communion table this morning. We pray all these things, grateful for who you are and what you have done, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. I want to remind you that we have uh, prayer partners available for you. If you'd like anybody to pray with afterwards, for you, for a family member, for something that's going on in life. We also have uh, on the back table as you leave this morning, opportunity for you to write down prayer requests before you leave. And if you leave those with us, we pray over those as a staff every week during our staff meeting. And it goes out to our prayer team. So you're being prayed for uh, throughout the week on those prayer requests as well. just want to reiterate one thing. You know, Wes, Wes uh, told us about uh, the baptisms that are happening next week. I just want to remind you that uh, to be here and be here on time, if you're at the early service, it's 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock in here, and 10.45 in here, because uh, we're going to have baptisms kind of right near the top of the service. And here's one of the things. Don't just be here for your sake. Be here for the sake of those who are being baptized. When we go through and talk about what baptism is, we talk about the fact that this is something we celebrate together as a church family. And so you want to be here to celebrate with those who are being baptized, making a significant a decision in their life to represent uh, their discipleship, their fellowship of Jesus through baptism. And so be here for them uh, as well as being here for yourself to be a part of the celebration. It's going to be a great Sunday next week. Looking forward to it. So you guys have a great week. We'll see you then. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. 
For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.